Hey everyone, it's Wes. Just wanted to intro this episode very quickly. It's a special two-part episode. It's all about a absolutely crazy criminal case that happened in the 80s in Australia. I think you guys are really going to like it. We have a really cool guest. I did a lot of research for this one. This was one that required a lot of different sources, and I actually forgot to mention them in this episode, so I did want to bring up my sources. I used this podcast called A Perfect Storm, The True Story of the Chamberlains. That was really helpful for me. There's a lot of little details in that podcast I couldn't find anywhere else. Uh, I used Case File, which is one of my favorite podcasts. They did a episode all about the death of Azaria Chamberlain. I also looked at this documentary. I watched some of it called Lindy Chamberlain, the true story documentary. Uh, plus, I read just like a billion articles online. There were so many different articles and like names and things to remember for this one. I do realize in retrospect, I pronounced a few things wrong, uh, including Uluru, which is the place that's um, a sacred place to a lot of the indigenous people in Australia. And I really feel dumb for mispronouncing that. But just so you know, I had a billion things in my head. Anyway, that's about it. I really hope you guys enjoy these ones. I put a lot of time into them. Thanks so much for those of you who are subscribers. Uh, you really keep us afloat, um, and it truly means the world to us. So um, with no further ado, here's part one of A Dingo Ate My Baby. Welcome to Tooth and Claw, everyone. We're doing a really special episode today. Uh, we're doing the A Dingo Got My Baby episode, which is a story that people have been asking for for a long time. It's a story that's pretty well known in, in pop culture. And I also... It's I, like well known, but no one like actually knows what it is. Right. I feel like people know about the story, but they don't... And they know there was something weird that happened with it but they don't really know exactly what went on and how big of a deal it was in Australia. And we're bringing the pain. We are bringing the pain. Quite literally. <laughs> um, so I, an alternative title I had for this episode was Up and Eaten, and that is because we're joined by a really special guest today. We're joined by Payne Lindsay. He is the host of Up and Vanished and Atlanta Monster. He's produced a number of other podcasts for Tenderfoot, uh, including Radio Rental. And not to mention, he's also a director and a documentary filmmaker. This story involves a lot of true crime aspects, so we wanted to bring on someone that actually knows what they're talking about. So, Payne, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. I'm happy to be here. So you're, you're, a pod, you're just not some random guy? You're a podcaster? You do stuff? No, I'm definitely just a random guy, for sure. Um, I don't know. I don't even know why I'm here. Honestly, Up and Vanished is like <laughs> the premiere. If you guys haven't checked that out, it's it's incredible work. So we're honored to be joined by the one and the only Payne Lindsay. Yes, we are. Well, I just you. gave a second introduction. There you I go. Appreciate yeah, exactly. That. <laughs> I feel like I just did Wes's job again. This is actually just going to be introductions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm actually going to introduce the story. It's one that is still talked about in Australia at length today. But during the 80s, it was really all that anyone was talking about. And this phrase, a dingo got my baby, is still like a phrase that's used in the pop culture lexicon. This is all anyone was talking about in the 80s, huh? It truly was. Like, was <laughs> it dominated the news cycles in Australia. Uh, in the U.S., okay. I don't think so as much. I think in the U.S., it kind of was more became a thing in the 90s. And that's because... Mm. Shows like Seinfeld and The Simpsons referenced it, really popular shows. And then people started to kind of learn a little bit more about it in the 90s. But it's a really tragic story, and it's one that we've kind of always mocked a little bit in the U.S. And there's this kind of like 
uh, Australians kind of resent that. Really? They kind of feel like we don't understand just how tragic of a story this was. And it's kind of true. As I've researched it, I'm like, oh, this isn't something I would joke about too much because it's pretty crazy what actually happened to this family. Okay, so I'm just muting my mic. Yeah, you might as well mute (laughs) yourself. (laughs) Pain is our new Jeff this episode. Um, That's right. All right, I'm going to get into it. Payne, feel free to stop if you ever want to interject, ask any questions, give any kind of expert opinion. I also have a few questions that I have ready for you, but otherwise you can just just listen and and hear what happened. Cool. So in 1969, Alice Lynn Murchison, who went by the nickname Lindy from a small age, married Michael Chamberlain in Australia. And we've already talked about how in Australia, if you're like a Linda, you're just going to be called Lindy. That's how they do things down there. They love nicknames. Anyway, so she went by Lindy, and we're just going to call her Lindy from now on. But she married Michael Chamberlain in 1969. They're both really active members of the Seventh-day Adventist religion, and Michael was actually a pastor in that church. People that knew them in their community described them as quiet, anonymous, really happy, and really polite. Azaria Chamberlain was born to Lindy and Michael on June 11, 1980, in Mount Isa in northern Queensland, Australia. So they already had two boys. Aiden was six, and Reagan was four. But since marrying, they had dreamed of having a little girl, and those dreams came true when they had Azaria. So on August 13, 1980, when Azaria was only two months old, they decided to go out on vacation. And they kind of, sounds like they did vacations pretty similar to how me and Jeff did vacations growing up, which was like they went camping somewhere within a day or two's drive. Used to do vacations. We yeah, do that's vacations true. We do good, good vacations now. now. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah, my dad I definitely don't. dragged me out to national parks and stuff. And as a kid, I was like, oh, my God, this sucks. Let's go to the beach or something. And now as an adult, I'm like, hey, that was kind of cool. I've, I've been to that park you before. You appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. I, yeah, Wes, you might not be into bears if we didn't go to Yellowstone That's a good year. point. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> upset about it, but I'm saying this is very similar to how we were brought up. Okay, so they went out on this trip, and part of this trip is they were going to Uluru. So Uluru is that really huge monolithic rock in Australia. It's a really famous landmark. The, the colonizer name for it is Ayers Rock, but for the purposes of our podcast, we're going to use the indigenous name. It's Uluru, and that was one of the main stops on their trip. What is it? Uluru. It's U-L-U-R-U. It's like, is it? It's like that oh. giant, it's almost kind of like a it's massive a big rock. plateau. Yeah, yeah exactly. there you go. <laughs> Huge rock in simple is terms. Is there like stuff it, on it? It's just a big rock. It's like 300 something meters high. So like almost a thousand feet high. And it's just like completely flat outback, and then you just have this huge sandstone rock sticking out of it. Mm. So it's just like this big monolith that's been worshipped by Aboriginal people. It's just this really interesting landmark in Australia, and it's very sacred to the indigenous people of that area. It's the kind of thing that people think aliens are responsible for. Right. Like that's the kind of anomaly that it. it it's a really like weird the thing. Yeah, world's biggest ball of yarn, kinda. Yeah, aliens. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Well. I don't know if that's quite. <laughs> we just we thing. just watched we just watched Nope last night, so we got aliens. Oh man, no spoilers. Oh, was, it, no spoilers. was it good though? It was great. Okay, yeah, real good. Animal amazing. attack scene in that movie. Yeah, Ooh, you got that. Oh, okay. yeah, that's too. right. Nice. Um, so Jeff, if you remember the movie Rescuers Down Under, which I know you do, I kind of don't. There's a scene actually. at the very beginning where the camera's like racing towards Uluru. Anyway, it's a huge rock. Okay, cool. It sounds cool. It is. We'll have to do a tour there. All right. Yeah, Payne, you're invited. (laughs) Yep, Payne, you're coming with. 
Let's go. <laughs> All right. So they arrived on the 16th of August, 1980, and they settled into established campground near Uluru. And that night they set up their camp and they spent a really uneventful night under these expansive stars in the outback. And it would actually be Azaria's last night with her family. Uh Uh-oh. So nearby, an Australian dingo was engaged in its nightly ritual. It's slinking in and out of campsites. It's looking for food scraps that had fallen to the ground. It's even taking handouts from campers. This dingo is an opportunist and had come to depend on these campers for food Essentially, it changed its natural behavior to stay alive. And these humans that used to be avoided and feared are now considered an acceptable risk in order to get food. And that particular dingo would take any opportunity it could to get a meal. So the next day, the family's visiting Uluru. And Michael, he's a hobby photographer. He climbs up a section of the stone. Back in those days, you could actually climb up on Uluru. Anymore, I'm pretty sure you can't. But he climbs up on there, and he takes some photographs of some aboriginal cave paintings. And down below, Lindy is waiting with Azaria and her two boys at the bottom of the rock. And she actually takes a picture holding Azaria, like holding her arms out and her feet are on the rocks. And as she's doing this, she has a sense that she's being watched. And she turns to see a dingo standing on the rock behind her, and its gaze is just totally fixed on Azaria. And she remembers it being kind of creepy because it's just like tracking her daughter And it didn't seem to care at all that there's all these people around. And she leaves the area, but she feels a little unnerved because this dingo is so clearly habituated. It's a little little creepy. Yeah, it would be. Like, if you imagine you're out, you know, camping and there's a coyote in your campsite and you're holding a baby and everywhere you move that baby, it just perfectly tracks it with its eyes. It would be kind of like (laughs) people. People are always like flipping open their photo books and being like, look at my baby. So cute. And no, everyone's just like, I don't want to look at your baby. So babies are mostly not cute. Let's be real. That's true. Like some are. Especially two month old babies. They look like aliens. We're back on aliens. But finally, this this baby's getting looked at, and the ma I don't know, I'd be a little (laughs) flattered, maybe. You know what else isn't like that fun to look at? What? Cave paintings in general. Oh, I, I disagree. I've never been that's able a, to just like that's stare a hot take. at cave paintings. Yeah, that is a hot take. <laughs> you said kid paintings? Cave paintings. Ca- oh, They're wow. like looking at cave paintings? <laughs> kid paintings too. Every I time said, I see oh, cave kids paintings, I'm like, yeah, they always suck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cave paintings. Yeah, those. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're cool, but they're kind it's of kinda the same thing. I, I'll be honest. I had like a emotional experience once looking at cave art. So I'm going to disagree with you. That's a hard disagree for me. I hope it's just like some kids that were like, like it's the little S that everyone draws in elementary yeah. school. <laughs> They're oh, like parents beautiful. are mad at him for yeah. drawing on their house. <laughs> it wasn't. Like, that, look how, yeah. but, um, <laughs> it's still intact from 2000 years ago. Yeah. No, my kid drew it this morning. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so she's she's a little weirded out by this dingo, and part of that is because they had noticed signs in the bathrooms at the campsite, and those signs pretty much said, don't feed the dingoes, these dingoes are really habituated and food conditioned, and they were a growing problem in the Luru area. And they actually didn't know how big of a problem they were, because six weeks earlier, Amanda Cranwell, a three-year-old girl from Victoria, was attacked by a dingo while she was sitting in the family car with the door open. And the dingo actually attempted Mm -hmm. to drag her out of the car and away from her parents. And her parents had to intervene and scare the dingo away to rescue their daughter. How much do dingoes weigh? They're pretty similar to coyotes. We're going to get into their facts pretty soon. Okay. How much do babies weigh? Uh, (laughs) So at, at two months, it's about 10 pounds. 
So in August 1980, though, they had no idea about this previous attack. And they, like most Australians, the Chamberlains thought that dingoes were essentially harmless and just really a nuisance. And they felt really confident in this fact that dingoes had actually never killed anyone in Australia. So at the time, they, they, everyone knew that dingoes had never killed anyone. But I'm sure if you looked at like indigenous peoples and if you looked actually farther back in history, dingoes had for sure killed someone at some point. It's just in like modern recorded history, there was no record of a dingo killing a person. It's like our night of the grizzly. They felt exactly. like grizzly bears weren't going to kill anyone in Glacier. There's a lot of threads that match up with our night of the grizzly story. This is food habituated animals or food conditioned animals that people kind of saw as being somewhat harmless. So the head ranger at Uluru, Derek Roth, was really aware of the concerning dingo behavior in the campsites and the previous attacks on children. He had actually worked in Kenya with both law enforcement and wildlife management in the past, and he understood the dangers of food-conditioned animals, and he didn't want to risk anything with this dingo situation, so he had actually written a report to his supervisors, and this is really important, advising them that the habituated and food-conditioned dingoes might consider babies or children as potential prey. And he actually petitioned his superiors for high-powered rifles and ammo so that they could cull some of these bolder dingoes in the campground. So remove them, kill them. And he never got the ammo or the permission. So he knew there was a problem. He knew that it had gone past this kind of threshold of acceptable dingo behavior. And he was ready to kill some dingoes, but they wouldn't let him. Mm. All right. But at least he's covered now. Yeah, he's like, well, he's like, I said... I'd- <laughs> I tried. Yeah. So if it, someone dies, it's not me. I told y'all. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. So some quick dingo facts. They are medium-sized dogs that live in both Australia and Southeast Asia. As far as their origin in Australia, it's commonly thought they arrived on the boats of Asian seafarers around 4,000 years ago. Some scientists think that they actually may go back way further in Australia and that they might have walked over a land bridge up to 18,000 years ago. So there is a bit of dispute yeah. about their origin, but the earliest fossil record of a dingo in Australia is about 3,500 years ago. Do they live anywhere else besides Australia? Just, just Southeast Asia. Oh, okay. okay. So there likely were domesticated dogs that turned feral over time. Males are about 35 pounds, females about 31 pounds, which is, again, pretty similar to the weight of a coyote. Um, they're reddish tan with white feet but then they can be yellow, tan, or even black, too. So that's not really sexually dimorphic, right? They are, but not, like, very strongly. They're pretty okay. much, they're essentially the same size, but they are still, males are a little bit bigger. They have a really large, ex- oh, go ahead, Mike. I was just going to ask Jeff to explain what sexual, sexual dimorphism di- is. Yeah, for Jeff. everyone knows what it is. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was nodding my head like I knew what that was. I was like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's like when the male or the female get, like, substantially bigger than the other, mm. or if they, like, have a lot different coloration, they're sexually dimorphic. Yeah. Okay. These seem like they're more similar, They're pretty I guess. close to the same weight. Yeah, Just most of the time, like, bigger. Yeah. they differ a little bit bigger gap. Yeah, generally, yeah. There's, sexu- there's some sexual dimorphism in animals. And yeah, these are sexually dimorphic animals, but it's they're not strongly so. It would be kind of hard to tell them apart if you saw sure. like a male and a female, whereas... Some of the animals, it's really easy to tell. Mm-hmm. So my biggest question with them is, do they eat koalas? Uh, they would, <laughs> That's for a, sure. They do? We're going to talk about that. They would or they do? They, wow. they would, and I'm going to explain why I say it that way. 
Uh, That's so gross. So one cool (laughs) thing about their like their morphology, like what they can do, they can actually rotate their wrists, which is something other dogs can't do. And so when like people have had dingoes in captivity, they've actually been able to like turn doorknobs and lift latches and stuff. What? Yeah. Mm. And then they also have really flexible shoulder joints, which allow them to climb trees, climb fences, climb cliffs. They're much better climbers than most dogs as well. So it's pretty cool. Cool. They're a cool dog. Yeah. They're adaptable. They live throughout Australia. They live in packs consisting of a breeding pair, pups from that year, and then potentially pups from the previous year. And Jeff, to your point, they're the largest mammalian carnivores in Australia, and they're super opportunistic. So I wouldn't have guessed that. If a koala yeah. were to fall out of a tree or something, a dingo would for sure eat it. It's just that they don't climb trees to get koalas, so they're not like a main staple for dingoes. Mm. Okay. You know, and maybe they'd get syphilis while they're at it, or chlamydia. What do koalas have? Chlamydia. (laughs) Chlamydia. (laughs) So they eat pretty much everything in Australia. Everything from, like, insects up to kangaroos is on their menu. They can eat kangaroos? Yeah, that's actually one of their main things they eat. And they'll run them down as packs. Yeah. Not adults, right? Adults, but usually not big adult males. But they'll eat, like, females and younger kangaroos. Yeah. The big adult males are called joeys, right? Uh, no, that's babies. That's, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 So they do eat joeys. Yeah. Uh, they do eat joeys, yeah. Do you think a good hunting tactic is like to pretend that they're the joey and hide inside the pouch until the kangaroo falls asleep and then they eat them? I don't think that's a good hunting tactic. <laughs> you don't? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, that was always kind of a traumatic thing for me to learn that kangaroo pouches are full of like mucus. Ugh. And they're really gross. Oh no, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's God. not like I a, it was pleasant... like a warm blanket or something. Like <laughs> yeah. a I think that's what I West thought. Elm too. Blanket. Like a wet, yeah, warm, <laughs> wet blanket. That's why I don't like this podcast. I just learn these things and I dislike animals. I quit. You quit every episode sense. now, Mike. I know. Yeah. I'll be back. I'll come crawling back. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so sometimes they will, they'll hunt in packs to bring down larger animals like big adult kangaroos or even cattle. And when they do... They're pretty, like, coordinated? Yeah, they are. Much like African wild dogs or wolves, they're very coordinated in their pack hunting behavior. But an interesting thing about them is they do often go for the throat of the animals that they attack. And if it's a small enough animal, they'll grab them by the throat and then shake them back and forth. And that just rips Mm. out that larynx and everything and kills it pretty quickly. Yeah, that's a good strategy. Yeah, it's... Watch MacGruber if you haven't. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're going to go back to the Chamberlains. That night after sunset, they're barbecuing with some other campers. This is their second night in the campground. Uh, They'd met these campers, Greg and Sally Lowe. The Lowe's were also a really young couple. They also had a small baby. And because of that, they became fast friends. Sally remarked later that she actually found baby Azaria to be so cute and happy that them meeting the Chamberlains made her want to have a second kid. So at one point, as they're barbecuing, Sally leaves the dinner, and she goes to throw away her baby's diaper, and she has her baby on her hip, and she turns to see a dingo that's following her a few paces behind. And she turns around, and she's looking at this little dingo, and as she confronts it, it runs off into the brush. And then she goes back to the barbecue, and not long after, another dingo shows up, and Michael, Lindy's husband throws a crust of bread to this dingo and Lindy actually gets kind of mad at him and she's like you shouldn't be encouraging him you shouldn't be feeding him and after this dingo gets this bread it runs off so a little bit before 9 p.m. Azari is starting to get sleepy and Lindy decides to go put her to bed and Regan her older brother who's four is already sleeping in the tent so she and Aiden the six-year-old they get up they leave the other campers 
They go put Azaria to bed, allegedly, and they return six to ten minutes later. I just want you guys to remember these details. This little window of 20 minutes is really important. So Lindy gets up, she leaves Greg and Sally Lowe, Michael Chamberlain, they're all together, and she takes her six-year-old son with her to put her two-month-old baby to sleep in the tent with her four-year-old that's already sleeping in the tent. Mm -hmm. She's back in like six to ten minutes, so she's not gone very long. So the baby's just in a tent? Yeah, and, and one thing that she does forget to do, she doesn't zip up this tent. It's really hot, so she just leaves the door open. Regan's already asleep in the tent, and she puts his area asleep in the tent in like a kind of like a baby bassinet that's in the tent. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a few minutes after Lindy comes back to the barbecue, Sally hears a sharp and really anguished cry from a baby. The cry was really short, and then it was immediately and abruptly cut short. Lindy didn't seem to notice, but Michael did, and he told Lindy that it was Azaria and that she should go check on the baby, which I thought was kind of funny. Like, not funny, but. Like, Lindy had just put Azaria to bed, and then she came back, and then Azaria cries, and Michael's like, hey, will you go check on her? It's like, dude, go check on the baby yourself, you know? Yeah, like especially if it, like, <laughs> I don't know, though. Yeah. Sometimes they just figure they need milk. Yeah, maybe. I Yeah, I guess. But, like, he'd been, like, playing around in cave paintings <laughs> no, all day right. and stuff. Especially if it's, like, a shriek or something. Well, I don't know. What can a baby do besides, like, a normal cry? That's all they do, right? Well, no. <laughs> I don't know. Like I'm saying, like <laughs> oh, like as if far a as a like, four year old gets bit by a dog, yeah, they're gonna like do a different type of like scream. I think two months old, like two month old babies have multiple different cries. There's like a whine. Think? Do any of us have babies? Payne, you got any babies? Uh, not that I know of. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I did not have a baby. <laughs> One day, maybe. I feel like the cry would be like the same as like the I'm hungry cry. If it's like a two month old. Is getting attacked by a dog? I don't think so. If it's a baby. The reason I disagree, Jeff, is I was once in a car with one of our cousins when she was really young. And she was like kind of whining and crying. And then she got really upset. I think something hurt her or something. And she was just screaming. And it was like a very different cry. It was one you couldn't tune out or ignore. And so I really think there's a variety of cries for babies. Mm. Well... Any of you baby listeners, babies write in, write in and let us know (laughs) what you think. All right. (laughs) Okay. So this part's pretty important. The cry gets cut short and Michael tells Lindy that it was his area. She should go check on her. Uh, Lindy still wasn't sure, but Sally then this other camper said, no, I'm pretty sure it was your baby. And so Lindy gets up to go check on her and Sally, this other camper, she knows Lindy had just returned from putting his area down. She's a new mother herself. She knows like this frustration of a fussy baby all too well. And she watches as Lindy gets up to go check on Azaria and Regan in the small tent. And she and these other campers are still chatting and they're waiting for Lindy to come back when suddenly this really blood-curdling scream pierces through the night, followed by the words, My God, my God, the dingo's got my baby. So this is Lindy screaming. Everyone hears her scream, The dingo's got my baby. We're going to switch to what Lindy actually saw. She had been approaching the tent where Azaria and Regan had been sleeping when she actually sees a dingo run out from the tent and sprint off into the brush. And her first thought is like, okay, there's no food in my tent, so what was it doing in there? And then she realizes, oh, it might have been messing with my kids. So she runs to the tent door and she immediately sees that Azaria is gone and she frantically searches around the tent for the two-month-old baby, and knowing that she didn't have much time, she screams out that the dingo had gotten her baby, and then she asks people for a flashlight. Oh my gosh. 
Derek Roth, the lead ranger that we'd brought up earlier, him and some indigenous trackers show up really quickly, and they rush over to investigate the tent where they actually notice a large puddle of blood. They grab their flashlights, and they quickly find a set of dingo prints leading from the tent through the dusty ground, and then they disappear when they hit a nearby road. So they try and follow these tracks as best they can. After they investigate the tracks, this blood, the general scene, none of the men or Roth have any doubt that it was a dingo that had killed, or at least run off with Azaria. They even later, as they do later investigations, they even find an impression in the ground where it looks like Azaria had been dragged or set down. And they can even see like the fabric of her onesie in that impression. So they're like, Mm. these dudes, and this, you guys might be wondering why I keep bringing up these little details, but it'll make sense later. They're confident that a dingo killed this kid. And they're, these are like trackers. These are people that know dingoes better than anyone. They, I listened to some interviews with these guys and they, the interviewer was asking them like, you know, what killed this kid? And they're all like, dingo, dingo, dingo. Without a doubt, it was a dingo. That's a dingo. That's a dingo. (laughs) Dingo. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So, um, Sally doesn't have a flashlight, nor does Lindy. Lindy's the mom. Sally's the friend and shock's really setting in and they're feeling pretty useless So Sally actually decides to help out and try and take care of Aiden. And without really thinking ahead, she's like, I'm going to tuck him in and put him to bed so he's not in the middle of all this. And she takes him to the tent where the baby had just been killed. Oh, no. So she pokes her head into the tent and she sees like a mess of blankets. And then she actually kneels into a pool of blood. And she's like, oh, shit, this was not the right place to bring a six-year-old kid. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But then at that moment, she realizes that Reagan, the four-year-old, is still asleep in there. And she shakes him a bunch, and he's not waking up. And then finally, he jumps out of his sleeping bag. And it turns out that he was just so paralyzed by fear that he had, like, refused to move an inch. Oh, wow. And he finally, like, gets up and runs out of the tent. Mm. But poor little Aiden, he now has seen all this blood. And Sally later says that he had said, a dingo has our baby in its tummy which is pretty sad to think you have this yeah. new baby sister and like, right. and then all of a sudden she's gone and you can't really make sense of that. That's yeah. not good. No, it's not. It's not a nice thing for a <laughs> six year old kid. I, apparently these kids turned out all right though. So the dingo was the obvious culprit, but it seems so strange that even Lindy questioned it at one point And she asked Michael if maybe someone had actually taken his area from their tent. And then Michael mentioned all the blood and he said, you know, it's just not likely that it was anything else. So I wanted, I wanted to break down a little bit, like, why is this such a strange idea that a dingo would take a, a tent from a baby? And as I mentioned Hold up on. to that point, what was <laughs> that? That is like? a strange idea. Yeah. To take a tent why from a baby? Why would a dingo take <laughs> yeah, a Yeah, why are baby these dingoes tent? stealing tents from babies? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll never know, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> Science can't explain this one. Yeah. How did these babies save up enough money to get tents in the first place? Yeah, it's such a deep question. You have to go really back to the beginning here. Why do these babies have jobs? How did, yeah. I quit too. I also quit the podcast. We got to interview this tent. (laughs) All right. Why is it so strange that dingoes would be snatching babies from tents? I misspoke. There we go. All right. Yeah. That actually sounds a lot more normal yeah. now. So up to that point, <laughs> yeah. as I mentioned, 
there have been no documented human deaths from dingoes in Australia. So the thought of one actually like going into a tent and grabbing a baby was pretty crazy to a lot of people. But we do have to remember these are really food conditioned dingoes and they're really habituated and they actually even had a record of attacking children. Way to go, Mike. Michael. What happened? Throwing with- that piece of bread to that oh, one. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's just exactly bad call. encouraging that behavior. Yeah. yeah. So bad casting bad light on all us mics. <laughs> all seven trillion of us mics out there. <laughs> I wanted to break this down a little bit. The the whole food conditioning thing. We talk about it a lot in our Night of the Grizzlies three-parter, but I want to just talk about it a little bit more here. In a situation like this with the potentially predatory animal, and you have some food conditioning happening, it's not uncommon to see escalating behavior. So they're gonna be testing the water, they're gonna be seeing what they can get away with, and then if wildlife managers don't act to change that behavior or remove these boldest animals, that escalation is gonna continue and continue until it crosses over into predation. So we see that in Yellowstone. Like if we start to have a bear come into campgrounds and really start to figure out if it can get food or get some kind of reward, we take care of it immediately, whether that's hazing the bear, just giving it a really bad experience so it's afraid of the campground, or actually trapping it and taking it to a different part of the park. That avoids that bear actually getting a reward and escalating that behavior because that's either going to end up in a dead bear or a dead person or a hurt person. Mm -hmm. That's what they really should have done. They should have either hazed these dingoes every single day or they should have killed the ones that were escalating. Mm -hmm. So... A helpless two-month-old baby in an open, unguarded tent is really in the wheelhouse of a dingo. I mean, they can bring down kangaroos, so it's not hard for them to kill a baby. Really, the only thing that would typically stop a dingo from doing this is their risk-averse nature. But if they've been around humans for months receiving rewards and taking all these risks, it would seem like a no-brainer to go and kill this baby. That's the danger of food conditioning. It really just removes that natural fear of humans, and it associates humans with food. Derek Roth, that lead ranger, he's convinced that the dingo took the baby. He continues to follow tracks that night with the help of these elders and some local police. And then there's also 250 volunteers that scoured the area looking for his area. The local police arrived, the Northern Territory Police, and they immediately started it on the search. So, Payne, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. If there's a potential disappearance, especially one that might involve some violence, what are some of the first things police should do when they get to that scene? Find the boyfriend. Yeah. Find the (laughs) ex-boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Uh, That baby. That baby had like three different boyfriends, (laughs) I think, too. (laughs) I mean. Prolific baby. If someone's disappeared, I guess whatever place you think that they were last at, make sure that this place isn't being contaminated with people wandering around, touching stuff, moving stuff. Like, is this going to be a crime scene later on that we're going to, that's, you know, going to be further tainted by us just in a a panic trying to figure out what happened and, you know, ruining the chances to find, you know, actual evidence later. That's a thing that happens a lot, I think. So that's one of the first things is just collecting any evidence they can. One thing that really stood out to me is that these police initially just went right into the search for the dingo. And there was a lot of people that witnessed this. There was a lot of people there that had witnessed Azaria being put down and the scream and Lindy, you know, yelling out a dingo's got my baby. And I, I mean, that's another thing I wanted to ask you, Payne, is in your experience with some of these disappearances, like how important is it to have some eyewitnesses? I mean, 
Eyewitnesses are, it's like a roll of the dice. Yeah. Either it's extremely reliable or this person doesn't have any clue what they really saw. And now that something bad's happened, they're remembering it differently. And you ask them again 15 years later and it's become this thing that is totally not, right? My thing yeah. is, my question right now is, is it the sheriff or something who was like, oh yeah, the dingo definitely got the baby, right? Like The ranger, yeah. But is this also the guy who really wanted to kill these dingoes? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so he, he definitely regrets not Just an idea him. there. Yeah, he, well, I mean, also, he sounds like he probably wanted it to be the dingo too. He's like, oh, I yeah. know it's the dingoes. That's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's Those a really damn good point. dingoes, where is it? Right. I told yeah. you we should kill these things. He had that existing bias. Pre-existing bias. Yeah, yeah, totally. But like probably for good reason too. Sure. Totally. Like oh, totally. He sees totally. The dingoes going into camps and he's like these yeah. guys are going to do something. Well, and these mm-hmm. elders that he had him that he had joined him had no reason to like want to pin this on the dingoes cuz they actually sure. for them dingoes are somewhat sacred too. So like they But they felt the same yeah. way. Yeah, they did. But like okay. shouldn't the first thing they should do be look for the baby well what they should be doing like is for like the sliver of a chance it's not dead they mm-hmm. should but what they probably should be doing is dividing and conquering so they should have some people that are organizing a search party and then some people that are collecting witness testimony and collecting evidence because violence they should be shooting something too <laughs> they should be. <laughs> they guns out they for sure yeah <laughs> yeah um anyway someone's been hurt a baby's missing there had been some violence, so it is important that they collect some evidence. Mm-hmm. And like Payne mentioned, the longer witnesses go without recording a statement, the fuzzier and fuzzier those details are going to get. So it's really important that you get those statements immediately. And in this case especially, it really would have made a huge difference. But the police mm-hmm. didn't do that. Yeah. I, have, I, I wanted to ask, because like you said, over the years, information that people remember and retain slowly can change. Have you ever had that opportunity to be talking to someone whose information or story slowly changes over the process of when you were interviewing them or from their first witness to when you were talking to them or anything like that? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, half the time, these are things that you I can't definitively prove or disprove myself, but right. I'm pretty sure, you know, my instincts are like, oh, that's probably not what happened, actually. Like something as simple as, the color of this glove and this person thinking that it was blue and or it was translucent and over the years it becoming this idea was there another glove that was planted here like and it turns into a bigger more conspiratorial idea just because someone's glance of it you know in their in their memory it's blue but really maybe it wasn't maybe it was just off-white and it's you know what's the difference but that becomes some bigger thing that confuses the investigation later, potentially. You know what I mean? Those little details can make all the difference. And in this case, mm-hmm. that's Wes definitely... changes his story on everything. A lot. Yeah, oh. Just like after like a month, it's his whole new story. All right. <laughs> well, we see in our stories all the time, like we kind of just have to take the victim's word for it on a lot of things. Because a lot of sure. times they're on their own. They're on their own. So like yeah. you can't, it's hard to ever know 100% if... Like you said, you probably have some instincts that you've built up over the years at this point where you can kind of pick out 
little bits and bobs of things that don't sound quite right but i don't know it's just Mm -hmm. like it can get so messy when there's a lot of people involved everyone's telling a different story and um well whatever let's fit maybe we should finish the story before we cast any aspersions yeah we're gonna be talking a lot more right we'll be talking a lot more about this in in the second part this is a two-parter if i didn't mention this but um what yeah so are we getting paid overtime? Uh, so the search was called off that night around 1 p.m. And the local police actually offered to drive the Chamberlains to a nearby hotel. But they only had room for Lindy and Regan and Aiden. So Michael went and he actually and this is like pretty tragic. He collected the clothes and blankets from the bloody tent and packed them into his car like all on his own. And then another tourist that helped with the search. Her name was Roberta Downs. She wanted to go with him to the hotel to check in on Lindy. And she sat in the passenger seat of his car. Now, that might also seem like a kind of a throwaway detail. That's really, really important because not long from now, the police are going to come up with a pretty crazy theory based on some really shady forensic evidence. And what their theory is going to be is they're going to convict Lindy of the death of her daughter. And they're going to say that she had, when she left that barbecue, she somehow got rid of Aiden, like stashed him somewhere changed into a tracksuit, grabbed Azaria, then went to their car, cut Azaria's head off with nail scissors. What? So like those little tiny scissors that you use to cut your fingernails, she used those to completely decapitate her child or at least slash her throat to where it was almost decapitated and then put the baby and the head into a camera bag and then later go and bury the baby uh, and blame it all on dingoes. So that was their theory that they came up with. And their theory was that she did all of that and then changed back into her outfit in six to ten minutes. Is it Pleaf Cheese Wiggum from <laughs> The Simpsons? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Bake them away, boys. Yeah. <laughs> What's up with the tracksuit? Why, why is that even relevant? So she could run faster? Well, just because she came back with no blood on her whatsoever, I don't know why it was a tracksuit. Oh, okay. Um, well, where is this tracksuit? Where did they ever yeah. find it? Or, or was it well, missing like from her bag? The people or? at the camp, couldn't they like... We're going to talk about all Verify that. she okay, didn't okay. change. Yeah. yeah. This is all stuff that we're going to So many questions. Over. That's going to be their theory. It's not their theory yet. I see, I see. so obvious. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's the reason why probably people are talking about this forever. Because right. like, mm-hmm. it, yeah. to us on the outside, it's like, What? It just get keeps getting more and more ludicrous, but yeah. <laughs> the police were just like, this is too obvious. Something <laughs> yeah. else happened yeah. here. Yeah. We got to get to the bottom of right. it. We're getting, we're getting ahead of ourselves, though. This <laughs> okay. is just, I just want you guys to know that's the theory they're going to come up with. Right now, that's still well, not you're the getting theory. ahead of us. Right now, yeah, exactly. yeah, it's your fault. All right. <laughs> so the next day, Derek Roth, the ranger, and some of those indigenous trackers, they followed the tracks longer. They followed them for like five or six miles. They never found Azaria's body or the dingo. Greg and Sally, the other campers, showed up the next morning, and they found the local police and actually asked them who they should make their statement to. And the police told them there's no need to make a statement. This whole thing is very straightforward, and their main priority was to locate the dingo and Azaria. At this point, the news is really badgering the Chamberlains for their story, and their initial reactions to the press is what first brought some scrutiny on them. So Lindy was seen as kind of cold and unfeeling, and Michael even stopped searching for Azaria to go help the press and like take some pictures of the bloodstained tent. And in their first interviews, they just really seem like kind of clinical almost when they're talking about the loss of their daughter. 
So mm. I wanted to ask you guys, like, and Payne, you especially, it, when something like this happens, like a disappearance or a big loss, is there a normal way for people to act? No. I mean, you don't know how you would act. I don't know how I would act either. You know, we might act in a way that we've never acted before in our whole life. It, it might come across as strange or whatever. So a lot of pressure, a lot of eyes on you. So I don't usually read too much into that unless someone is really saying some biz- bizarre stuff that is borderline incriminating or something. You know, right. obviously take it for what it is and, you know, analyze it. But no one knows how they're going to act when something horrible happens, right? And the media is exactly. asking, you know, what you think and feel about it. When, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I do it. I don't know how to even say this. <laughs> Go ahead, when Mike's, say it. When Mike's mom died, he told me about it. And I didn't believe him because of how casual he was yeah, about it. Exactly. But there that was go. just like his way of processing it, too. It's not like he exactly. didn't care. But it was like, from my perspective, it was like... A little strange. Dude, like, you need to, like, Feel react that. a little bit to this. Yeah. Well, it just it was so... We don't need to get into this, but, like, when something yeah, so... You unex- don't need to defend yourself. If something's so unexpected, like a dingo stealing your baby, like, you just don't want to accept it. You right. emotionally probably just shut off and revert to, like, a previous version of your brain that's saying, like, that didn't happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally understand. Yep. That's yeah, what that- I would probably do. Some version of that where I'm like, okay, let's go into uh, robot mode here and, you know. Yeah. And how how messed up is it to like judge someone's reaction right after their baby got eaten? Totally, yeah. It's like she seems cold. I don't believe her. Well, this is the '80s, and like a lot of the psychology. (laughs) Why isn't she smiling? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) a lot of the psychology of this stuff. Like she's not crying enough for me. Yeah, it's like okay. That's what people were saying. Like that was totally it. And like this was the '80s. This was a time when. A lot of this psychology hadn't fully been explained. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a very rural part of Australia, and people were really quick to judge these people. So when the police talked to Lindy and Michael in the hotel, they wanted to know what Azaria was wearing at the time of her disappearance. And Lindy told them, and again, this is a really important thing for episode two to remember. She told them that she had been wearing a disposable diaper, a white jumpsuit, some booties, and a matinee jacket. So a matinee jacket kind of looks like a little Afghan knitted jacket almost that babies were always wearing back in those times. Um, Yeah. So fashionable for a baby. Yeah. Real fashionable. Real, real trendy that in those days. I'm not really hip on baby fashion, so I'll take your word for it. We know you got a matinee jacket somewhere. I do. You're right. I do. This is a good looking baby. It is. Well dressed. So after a couple days of searching, little to no trace of Azari is found. The police actually decide to start killing dingoes. So they kill six dingoes. They check their stomach contents and still nothing. The police. That's what I was saying. You got to start shooting stuff. They did. Yeah. And (laughs) they didn't find anything. I will say a two month old baby. It's not unheard of for a dingo to like a a dingo could completely consume a two month old baby. Like there wouldn't necessarily be remains. They could eat the entire thing bones and all. Mm. Wow. Oh. At this point though, because of that, because they have no evidence and they don't have a dingo with any kind of remains or anything, the police and the media are starting to feel like maybe a dingo wasn't actually involved in this. And they assign some investigators to the case. A few of them believed the dingo theory, but a few of them were were a little dubious too. And this guy John Lincoln was one of the ones that immediately didn't believe that the Chamberlains had a dingo attack Azaria. 
And that's mostly because it had never happened before. And some people pushed him on that stance. And then he even said, it's impossible for a dingo to carry a two-month-old baby in its jaws. And he filled this guy. I can't believe this. He filled a bucket with um, like 10 pounds of dirt. And then he tried to hold it in his mouth for like over a minute and he couldn't do it. And he was like, Come on, bro. if I can't do it, a dingo can't do it, which is just <laughs> what? ridiculous. What? Like, like we're the same animal. But anyway, a dingo yeah, definitely wow. can hold a, t- a 10 pound animal in its jaws. No problem. Oh, I think I can hold a 10 pound bucket of dirt in my mouth for a minute. I want you yeah. to try this. Let's try it. Yeah. Next episode. You know, that yeah. doesn't sound that hard. All right. I'm yeah, you have to go to the chiropractor after that, though, I would yeah, imagine. Exactly. I'd, I'd yeah. Or the dentist. Or the dentist, <laughs> yeah. My brother's a dentist. Yeah, so. Okay, so you're, you're good Not then. me, the other brother. The successful one. We know. You You tell us what you are every episode. <laughs> yeah. Payne, you kind of already... Yet to prove it. But. You kind of already mentioned this, Payne. But if you're... So if you're an investigator and this main culprit of a dingo doesn't make sense to you anymore, mm-hmm. who is going to be your next person that you're going to think of as like a potential suspect? Uh, I mean, whoever was with the baby last... One of the one of the parents, yeah. Would the other yes. children? How old was the other one? The, Aiden was six, and Reagan was six? four. Yeah. Is that is that an age appropriate to like kill a baby? Give like a witness testimony <laughs> oh. or something okay. about no? Okay. Yeah, didn't the four year old see the dingoes come in the tent? I think so, or at least heard something. Yeah. But, I don't know. Would you would you feel comfortable asking a child? Me personally? I mean, yeah. if I guess if I was if I was assigned to do it, then yes, but I'm not like a real investigator, so sure. I think it's probably one of those ages where you're young enough to be influenced by something, but also you might have a super pure memory. I mean, I think if it was uh, interrogation or interview that was filmed and you could see and how they got that information out of them without I guess overly influencing what they're saying, then maybe it could be an actual reliable source. Okay. Do we know Azaria wasn't involved in any drugs or gangs or anything pretty sure, like that? Pretty sure the two month He's- old Azaria <laughs> was not involved in any crime. You're asking the hard questions. Because you don't know if there's like a rival baby out there that, you know. Pretty sure there wasn't. A rival baby? Okay. We don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> um, to your point though, Mike, whether or not these kids would make good witnesses, I think of these other cases where people who probably had the mental facilities of like a child, there's been cases that totally hinge on them. Mm-hmm. You know, like you think of making a murder where they, you know, Brendan Dassey, he, he doesn't have the facilities of a child, but he obviously like was easily influenced by the police. And like they sure. hinge that entire thing on his testimony, you know. So I do think you can like a case can be made or broken by someone who you that's a good point take, like if yeah. the police get it in their mind that it was the mom they could like start asking the four-year-old like planting like, the yeah. did you see the mom put the baby in the tent right. and then like kind of create a narrative from totally. what they want yeah. with like a four-year-old exactly yep all right the chamberlains go home they go back home to mount isla and they immediately have all these rumors swirling around them some of the main gossip revolved around their relatively unknown religion, their Seventh-day Adventist, that seemed really strange to the majority Catholic and Anglican people in Australia. And they actually, people were starting to say that the name Azaria itself meant sacrifice in the wilderness. It doesn't uh, at all. 
but that's what people were saying. <laughs> what the heck? And that they had actually sacrificed Azaria as some kind of sacrificial lamb to like pay for the sins of the Seventh Day Adventist people. And that was like not just like a weird conspiracy theory. That was being published in the news. That was something that people oh, actually man. thought. Yeah. Another story in Women's Day magazine said that Lindy had written a thesis on dingoes during her studies. And when you break down where that rumor actually came from, she was in like the Girl Scouts of Australia program. It was like the equivalent. And at some point while she was a Girl Scout, they had her write a paper on wild animals. And one paragraph was about dingoes. So that's oh, where they got that, her. That's they her got. thesis. Yes. <laughs> Smoking gun. Yeah. <laughs> well, you said too that dingoes are like kind of spiritual. So then she just put the baby in the tent and left it. That is kind of a sacrifice. That's how they'd like sacrifice to King I, Kong. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I gotta watch right. that movie. Again. Yeah, Mike, go ahead and flag that one for uh for edit. Yeah, we're cutting right. that shit out. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. So they really didn't do themselves any favors in interviews. People To people, they came off as religious zealots or uncaring parents. They would constantly bring up how, like, Lindy was happy with God and all that kind of thing. And that was just kind of disconcerting to people that watched these interviews. And again, it's really impossible to expect people to behave a certain way when something like this happens. There's no kind of pattern for how you should act when your baby gets killed. So after a week of Azaria's disappearance, a white jumpsuit and some other clothes, minus the matinee jacket were found near a dingo den. They're torn and bloody. No body was ever found. But these clothes were like the first real tangible evidence of Azaria's death. They were torn. They had some ragged cuts in them, but only the top button of the onesie was undone. And outside of that, they're relatively intact. So in an interview, people were asking Lindy, like, how is this possible that this onesie was still, like, only the top button was undone? And Lindy, like, very clinically explained, like, haven't you ever seen a dingo with its food? It kind of peels away food. Like, it'll peel the skin off of animals and whatnot and peels it away. And people were like, how can she describe her baby like this? Like, this is crazy that she can say, a dingo could peel my baby like an orange. But that is true. Like, if a dingo grabs a baby by the head and shakes it back and forth, it wouldn't be hard for it to pull it out of this onesie. But... This is another strike against Lindy. She does this interview, and people just can't believe that she could be so clinical talking about the death of her two-month-old baby. They're just ignoring that the onesie was found in front of a dingo den. Right, exactly. Mm. Well, I mean, if you're implying that I killed my baby and I didn't, then I would probably clinically explain to you how that would be possible and off yeah. <laughs> right yeah exactly yeah, like as, yeah. as clearly and <laughs> concisely as possible yeah right see that's the other side of that where it's like oh, that's the thing i think too is like if you're if your master plan is to kill your baby mm-hmm. why would you ever use an animal that has no recorded record of ever killing a human you know it's a terrible plan like if that was her kind of escape plan it's yeah. not a very good one you know, if she did it, which I don't know all the information yet, if she did do it, then it wasn't planned. I think it was an accident. Then it turned into the dingo story. If any evidence okay. even That's supports that later. Yeah. I don't think she was like this theory. weekend. Uh, I'm going to do this. What animal would you choose, Wes? If I'm in Australia and I'm picking an animal, it's an, it's a crocodile. Cause it's just if gone. it's your baby, you're choosing. A I guess though, it's hard to say like how it got to the crocodile. <laughs> like my baby was out swimming in a pond at two months old. <laughs> Yeah, right. that's true. I don't know. I'm not picking an animal, probably. 
but I don't know. I've never thought about that. Did they ever find the? Anything. Did they ever find the matinee jacket? Do you think there's That's, a dingo just wearing that out there somewhere? We're going to talk more about that. That's an <laughs> oh, important okay. plot point. All right, they probably found it on a dingo. So we're gonna we're gonna get through this thing. We're almost there. Yeah, the dingo is wearing it. Look, that's him. Yeah. <laughs> that's the dingo. <laughs> that's the one that did it. Yeah, see? <laughs> All right. So the forensic lab had a lot of the evidence now, and they had no animal attack experts to examine the clothes. They had no way to test for dingo saliva, but they still came to the conclusion that it was almost impossible that a dingo had caused the damage to the jumpsuit. And some of the forensic experts that looked at the clothes said it was more likely that the cuts had been caused by some kind of blade. They also said that the hair they found in the tent was most likely from a cat, but that they weren't sure. They even, in a wildlife reserve in Adelaide, they tossed meat wrapped in onesies to dingoes to see how the bite marks and the shredding would compare to these clothes, and they got really mixed results. These are some weird experiments they're running out here. They really are. The forensic tests in this case are are pretty wild. Um, They had no other cases? They're just like, all right. Yeah, exactly. Let's toss meat. We're putting, you know... Buckets in our mouths were. This did really. I mean, it was all anyone was talking about. So I do think there was a lot of like resources put toward this case. Yeah. Um, Bucket of dirt. Yeah, that's expensive. Meat wrapped in a diaper. (laughs) Yeah, that'll cost you. I have another question for you. As far as forensic evidence goes, like, how can you shed some light on how reliable it is? That is a very general question. And I'm definitely not the forensic expert by any means. I mean, I think it just depends. I, I would I would venture to say that forensic evidence from the 80s is comparatively worthless to now. When we had, I mean, this is pre-DNA, all that stuff. And I mean, we were doing blood types to convict people and, you know, fibers from carpets. Really? Yeah. yeah. So it's what like, the heck? <laughs> it, it, you know, comparatively, it's very primitive. It sounds crazy for them to like find hairs in the tent and just be like, I think this is actually a cat. Right, right. But we're like, not sure. It's weird that they can't be like, this is what it is, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. The huge, perfect, huge difference. <laughs> yeah. This forensic evidence like was kind of starting to become a thing in the 80s, mm-hmm. and people believed in it really strongly. That's the crazy thing is this is new science that people were like, oh, they have forensic evidence. Right. But yeah. it was essentially worthless. But that is kind of what they based their entire case off was this forensic evidence. So mm-hmm. the Golden State Killer is starting to get a little sweaty, though. He's like, yeah. what's this new forensic <laughs> yeah, evidence exactly. stuff? He's like, that wasn't around 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Chamberlains end up going through hours of questioning. Afterward, there's news reports that they're now the prime suspects in the death of Azaria. And when asked what their motive might be, the police that were doing these investigations say that they don't need a motive, that they had enough forensic and circumstantial evidence to see them as the main suspects. So I thought aren't motive great. was like 100% like you need that. Or am I yeah. just watching too many procedures? Apparently, that's I not. I think motive is really more so for optics, like a jury. Oh, they okay. w- people want to understand. Well, why did they do it? Sometimes yeah. there isn't a good reason, though. You know, motive. What's a good motive that I could give, like, to kill your baby? Give me a good motive. Yeah. 
It's too yeah. loud. Just not yeah. wanting a baby anymore, you know, yeah. wanting to kill your baby. It's like, what, what are yeah. the number of motives that would be, oh, okay, I get that one. I hope that's a rhetorical question and you're not actually wanting me to answer what a motive <laughs> No, we're going to go down the line. You go okay. first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm and they already had had two kids. It's not like this was their first kid and they were like, oh, we just can't handle this. They had sure. already had two. Like, they were good parents. So there really wasn't a motive at all. But that's why it's either an accident and then something to cover up or yeah. I don't know. That's an yeah. interesting line. of Maybe thought. they yeah. had like a vision that like is going to grow up to be like Hitler. Yeah, that'd be a motive. That would, yeah, yes. <laughs> that'd be a motive. We're off the off the rails. <laughs> uh, so in Australia, you can't ignore that in Australia. I, I can. And that's generally what I do on this podcast. <laughs> Um, in Australia, an important part of this process is a coroner's inquest. And essentially what that means is a coroner is going to look into all of the data, all of the evidence, and they're going to essentially say how they think Azaria died. And the case was really hinging on this coroner's inquest, because if the coroner came back and said, oh, it's a dingo, then the police wouldn't feel like they had much of a case. But if he came back and said it was the parents, then they're going to run ahead full steam with it. So this is where they get their first lucky break in their corner. This guy's name is Dennis Barrett, and he was one of the first officials that acted really compassionately toward the Chamberlains. And he was actually appalled by the way they had been treated by the media, the police. That's crazy. And the He's public. like the first one to be nice to him. I know. Well, I mean, of yeah. officials like the Rangers and <laughs> yeah, these yeah. other campers and stuff were, but the police were not. Yeah, it's still just crazy. So he goes through this whole inquest. He gets witness statements from the Chamberlains, from the Ranger, Derek Roth, from the Lowe's, these other campers. And he even goes to Uluru to investigate the scene. So six months after Azaria's death, he comes out with his inquest findings. And he's so convinced of his decision that he actually lets the media broadcast it live, which was a first for the judicial system in Australia. And he wanted just to make sure that his message got to the public without any spin. And he said it was incredibly clear that the culprit in the death of Azaria Chamberlain was the dingo. And he also mm. criticized the forensic team that delivered the evidence, and he called them negligent and subjective. Wow. And he said that the Chamberlains and their children were not involved in Azaria's disappearance. So in your mind, this nightmare's over. You know, they got kind of like absolved of Azaria's death. And the Chamberlains are thinking that. They're thinking they're like, this is all over. And that's kind of what you would think too, but it's far from over. And by the end of 1982, Lindy would be serving a life sentence in prison. Damn, and that's no what we're way. gonna talk about in the second the second episode. Cliffhanger? Uh -oh. You're gonna yep, leave us that cliffhanger. Oh, Wes. <laughs> yeah. Gotta do this. That's yeah. crazy. Hey, everyone listening, don't look it up. We're gonna, <laughs> yeah. we're gonna, we're gonna give, give it to you, all you the better details. than if you the Wikipedia. Yeah. So just hold tight. <laughs> Wikipedia Brown. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Is that a thing? Wikipedia Brown. Encyclopedia Brown's son. Yeah. yeah. Someone yeah. else said that one time. I, I can't remember who it was, but I loved That's, it. They need um, to make yeah. that a thing if they <laughs> have it. Yeah. Well, Mike just loves Brown. Too. Oh, dude. I love that. <laughs> All right. So that's part one. Do you guys have any questions about part one before we get into our categories? Yeah, I got like a ton of questions, but it's probably all going to be in part two. So right. I'll just hold on to them. Yeah, I yeah, think that's I probably feel the same. Part. Let's do questions after part two. Um, I have a question for 
pain. If mm-hmm. so, say like you decided you wanted to do some investigative work on this story. What's your first move at this point? Would you want to go be on site? Would you travel there, or would you decide like the first couple people you want to reach out to and talk to, or where does that whole process start for you? I mean, it's been so long with this case. It would hinge on me being able to talk to people. Okay. So, I mean, if I had all the, whoever was still alive or around the closest players in this story, that's who I'd want to talk to. And that would basically inform anything else that I did. It would just pretty much be entirely on firsthand accounts and anything that was recorded somewhere on paper or files, whatever it is. But really the people is, is what I'm more interested in. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Payne, how about if you were the dingo and you wanted to get the baby but not be blamed for it, how would you go about that? Oh, I, th- I think he did a good job already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's key to get he, it out of the I think the dingo is in hiding still. I think he's, you know, yeah. up in the mountains somewhere. Yeah. Grew, grew yeah. a beard. <laughs> the dingo's yeah. like, I can't yeah. believe I got away with this. He can't, yeah, every, he comes down at midnight, steals trash, he runs back up to his little lair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He wears like the little Groucho glasses whenever he goes out. I can't believe that there's like the dingo's footprints in blood. I am like, I don't know. It's crazy. Well, there's more details we'll get to get into it though. It's crazy. Mike, to your question to Payne though, like what would he do if he reinvestigated this? One of the places that I got a lot of this information from that was really great was this um, other podcast called A Perfect Storm. And they do like a 12 part episode on this. Wow. And um, the guy that the guy that put that all together, he interviewed a lot of these people in like in like current day, you know, yeah, okay. and got their stories. And it was really interesting and really cool to see just how deep he dove into it. We're obviously mm-hmm. just doing like a surface level. But I if anyone cool. after you, I, I think we should what? do 13 episodes. I don't think beat we, should. Them out. we should. Yeah. <laughs> You're back for yeah. all of them. And man. I'll do a few bonus episodes too. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, don't listen to that one. Listen, just listen to us. Well, don't listen to Jeff because if you are interested in this and you really want to listen to the whole story, uh, check that podcast out. It's called A Perfect Storm. I really enjoyed okay. it. Okay. Um, sure. Awesome. So let's get into our categories. Um, Payne, I didn't, I didn't brief you on these, so hopefully you have some answers. But oh, let's do it. <laughs> our first category, because there were so many 90s TV shows that made fun of this, this whole thing, the first thing I want to ask you guys is what's your favorite 90s TV show? I'll go Ooh. first. Uh, mine, without a doubt, is The Simpsons. Like seasons three through probably ten, I think are like the best show ever made. So for me, it's 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 definitely The Simpsons. Payne, what's your favorite '90s show? That's tough, but I would have to say Unsolved Mysteries. And oh. I've recently been mm-hmm. binging all the episodes, and yeah. I have to. Check it that starts out. late '80s, it goes through the '90s to the early 2000s. But uh, yeah, it's a uh, Guilty pleasure, but there's also some really cool stories buried in there that are... Do many of those end up getting solved, like, now that we have more evidence? So, a lot of them have been solved, but some of... So, the weird thing I've been doing is I'll just, like, lay on my couch at night and watch that, like, watch that show, and I'll just Google people's names and just see if I can find their Facebooks and just weird shit like that. And half of them are actually still unsolved. And I'm like, what? We should get on that. They never figured that one out. I'm like, wow. 
wow. We should what? we should solve some of these. Were you Seriously. watching that back in the nineties? Were you watching that? Because I'm kind of. I was yes. So that's probably kid. where your whole thing started, right? Totally. I was like, told my mom about it the other day, and she was like, "Oh yeah, you used to love that show." I was wondering if I was a bad parent for letting you watch that. But I was like, honestly, I think <laughs> okay. it's influenced a lot of the things that I am into. I guess I don't know. Yeah, that's cool. That's great. Yeah. That's yeah. a perfect answer. So mine's in a similar vein, kinda. I I have two. I really need to shout out X Files. I love the X Files. <laughs> Obviously, a highly more fictionalized version of Unsolved Mysteries, but um, still I'm amazing. Going, yeah, I'm going Buffy. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, That's, that was my second pick. I, oh wow. Yeah, okay. Just, I just Sarah, Sarah Michelle Gellar is still like top three crush all time. You know. Whew. Have you ever watched that pain? Um, I mean, I have, yes, but not. You kind of look like Spike. You got a Spike as... thing going on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who, who's Spike? He's like the really the bad hot boy vampire, vampire guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. got yeah. like the cool, slicked back, uh, bleached You're hair. You're basically and... just saying you look really pale. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, he was my favorite character in the show. For like, sure. Okay. He's the best. Yeah. It's a compliment. It is. For sure. Spike on Buffy. I'll look him up. I mean, I would have gone Simpsons, but I'll I'll audible to Save by the Bell. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Yeah. Zach Morris and Kelly. Yeah. Like, Capacity. hottest couple ever. Oh, yeah. And then... It's such an underrated power to like just be able to freeze time for a little bit. And he's just like freezing time and like I don't know, that would be pretty awesome. That's a crazy I feel like component he didn't to it. Use that power to its full potential. No, yeah. he'd like still get in trouble <laughs> yeah. and stuff. It's yeah, like, he'd dude, be like you time like, out. Totally Oops, got I out did that. that and then yeah. like not do anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good pick and some really good input. Um, I'm going to look at that very differently when I go back to that. All right. So our next category is uh, your favorite Australian that's not Steve Irwin. Because I know if we said your favorite Australian blanket, me and Jeff would both pick him. So your favorite Australian that's not Steve Irwin. I I have a real dumb answer for this one, okay. but I'm going for it. All right. Uh, I'm going Bodie from Point Break. Oh, that's it. Because at the very end of the movie, moves to Australia for a little That's, bit okay. to catch the wave at Bell's Did he Beach. get dual citizenship? I think he got we'll let it count. <laughs> okay. yeah. uh, so mine is Ben Mendelsohn, the actor. I just, I've had a. There's very few movies of his that I haven't really enjoyed, and that like I'm. He's like one of those actors that when he's in a movie. I want to see the movie because he's in it. Mm, um, your yeah. favorite one's the newest Robin Hood, right? No. <laughs> My favorite movie of his is probably Place Beyond the Pines, but I also really liked oh, that's awesome in that. Yeah. I also really liked Rogue One. So, yeah, that's my pick. Oh, yeah. Dude, the newest Robin Hood, he has some of the craziest lines. <laughs> like, he's like, I want this man boiled in a pot of piss. <laughs> <laughs> bring that stuff back yeah oh man it's so funny uh i'm going with another actor and this is probably cheating too i don't even understand what this means so his imdb bio says he's an english-born australian actor okay uh it's guy pierce i love guy pierce is like my number one guy he was in my favorite movie of all time ironically (laughs) lockout space jail the dumbest most entertaining thing i've ever seen but also like LA Confidential, Memento, Count of Monte Cristo. Like, the dude has always been kind of like love Count of a Monte B Cristo. plus lister. Like, he's yeah. never quite hit that like highest level, but I love dude, him the, and everything. You should watch the movie The Proposition 
with him. That's yeah. amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That, that is good. so good. Wait, so when you say he's your number one guy, yeah. you just mean men named guy? Yeah, guy. that's what I mean. <laughs> he's my he's the best guy that I know. Yeah. <laughs> who else, yeah, I don't know who else would even be on that list. <laughs> Payne, you got a favorite Australian? So I'm going with the goat, uh, Heath Ledger. That's a good pick. Right? Mm. Right? Great pick. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your favorite performance by him? I mean, you, you have to say Dark Knight. I mean, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think that yeah. was just, I think we he got better Mike and better. Mike fight you on that one, but. I mean, he was great in everything, won't. but that was probably the most intense role he's ever played. I loved it sure. in that. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I'm going to go into another quick category. We usually do like a, what would Mike and Jeff do? Um, mm-hmm. In this case, if we're the baby, not really a great answer for that. Um, unless you guys have one that you want to say, but I was just going to kind of go right into what you actually should do if you are encounter if you encounter a dingo. Um, mm. So if you do see one, there are a few different things you should do. This is from the Fraser Island kind of like national park website. Fraser Island is the one place in Australia where you have the highest risk of being attacked by a dingo. And if you do see one there or anywhere, uh, you should stand still at your full height, fold your arms across your chest, face the dingo and calmly back away. If you're with another person, you can stand back to back because they do try and get behind you. You're gonna wanna call for help. You're gonna make some noise and be as loud as possible. And then you should never run or wave your arms, actually. That's another thing with dingoes that you don't really want to do is wave your arms around, which is interesting to me. Yeah, Yeah, because typically that's a thing you should do. Why do you think that is? I'm not sure, but that's everything I read said not to do that. And then really the most important thing to avoid these kind of encounters is never to feed dingoes. Uh, Almost every dingo attack that's happened in Australia, on the record at least, has been a direct result of food-conditioned dingoes. So Mm -hmm. you really want to avoid ever giving dingoes any kind of food keep a clean campsite don't feed them directly uh, make sure they're not getting human food but if they're really right. cute pet them for a second yeah, <laughs> yeah. just a second then get out of there yeah. <laughs> Quick pet. yeah yeah you might get bit but it'll be worth it yeah all right well i think that's probably it for our time but we're going to be back with episode two and uh awesome. Payne, we hope to have you along for that ride if yeah, you have time. let's do it, man. Cool. When y'all want to do it, Sweet. we will figure that out. Just let me know. Just email us, or yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll get a hold of you. Awesome. Cool. cool. Thanks, Thanks so Payne. That's fun. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah, that was fun, guys. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, anytime. We really appreciate it. All right. So thanks so much, Payne, for joining us. Uh, we have cut Payne loose so that we can get into a few of our other categories and respect his time. But we are going to be back with Payne for episode two. We wanted to do a couple more things with you guys just because we love you so much and we want to give you what you came here for. So, Jeff, do you have any listener questions? I do. All right. All right. This is from Rachel on Patreon. So many of the Tooth and Claw episodes mention how climate change is impacting animals. How do you all cope with the changing climate? Do you feel hopeful or depressed looking forward? Do you get overwhelmed? Um... I mean, not to be too depressing, but I feel mostly just depressed about it. Yeah, I don't. I think I don't there's feel like a hopeful. lot of just general anxiety in the world about it. Like, yeah, it's hard. Like, it sucks. People who won't admit climate change is a problem. Yeah, and but like, it's like they don't worry about it, which is like nice right. for them. But it's right. like 
you know, you kind of have to research things and, like, figure out that it is a problem and it's going to suck and it's going to, like, give you anxiety, but it's better to know than not know, you know? For me, the depressing part is that, like, we have all these... benchmarks that the climate climate scientists keep telling us like okay we need to do these things by this date or we or like we're getting past this point of no return or cataclysmic points and like we are we have leaders that are just unwilling to like actually try and hit those benchmarks or when they say they're going to it's all lip service so for me i just feel like more and more i feel very powerless and i kind of feel like the only thing that's going to change it is like a revolution um like and potential like violence i like that's kind of how okay. i see it yeah Should this is this the start I, I don't know but that's spark? really that anymore like i'm reading this, <laughs> this book called how to blow up a pipeline that's like yeah about how that's really the only solution <laughs> at this point wow yeah. i i'm daring to be optimistic and i know that we're past the point of no return on so many things already and that is depressing, but I think the generation coming up even behind us at this point, I think things are going to be more acted upon. I'm hoping. Again, this yeah. is like There's maybe just naive so much optimism. Momentum with it though. Even if okay, we were to like If you completely... want to drag me down into the mire, Wes, <laughs> no, go ahead. I, do. I just I want to hope. I want to yeah. hope that people are going to be better when this generation that's in at the head of everything it's a indelicate way of saying it but they're gonna die out and hopefully the people they're replaced by are a little more sensitive and are willing to act so i guess i hope what i was trying to interrupt you by saying is just like i think that if we wait for that it's too long and i think the one hope that we do have outside of what i said like revolution is technology i think if someone can figure out a way to actually reverse some of these effects through technology then we have some hope in that regard too but I don't think like waiting for old people to die out at this point is viable because by the time that happens, it's already too late. But that's part of what right. Mike's saying is like the next generation is going to put more resource into figuring it out. It's all going to suck and some species are going to die and it's going to be tragic. But I do think that 30 years from now, the world isn't going to be over. I yeah, think there's going to be work that can be done. You know, but what I what I'm I guess what I'm saying is the next generation is going to be putting band aids on, not like sure. stopping it from getting hurt. You know, well, you be the cynic and unhappy and okay. all depressed, and I'll choose <laughs> we'll to be. I choose we'll happiness. switch roles. We'll switch yeah. roles for a day. <laughs> Little, yeah. yeah, Freaky Friday situation. Yeah, there. we're all in it together. It sucks. You know, there's a lot of denial that's hard to reason with sometimes, but. Just look for facts and follow the facts. It is hard to be like a polar bear biologist and be just confronted with it day in and day out. So yeah, it does kind of break you down. All right. Next question. From Bear Tender. Uh, This is from Instagram. What's your favorite movie scene featuring two brothers? Bonus points if it's two brothers and a friend. So just so you know, we all have like three brother families. Right. Like Mike has three brothers, a little sister, or like three men in his family, and me and Wes have an older brother too. But I mean, a river runs through. It's the classic choice for me. Yeah. I was going to say that the scene where they they shoot the shoot in a river runs through yeah. it is probably my favorite brother scene. I don't know. I like any time Sherlock and 
oh my gosh, how am I forgetting his brother's name? Bancroft. Yeah, it's his yeah. like the he's actually part of like the city official whatever. I think those are always fun, no matter what the adaptation is. I just like that dynamic of kind of like a vigilante and then kind of a guy that plays by the books. So yeah, we'll go with that. Cool. Arena Ryan, or something like that. Wants no showers or baths. Showers. Ooh, shower. Yeah. I like. I enjoy a bath more. Oh, me too. But I but take like a it's shower. Less convenient, right. and it takes me like an hour because I, probably I never take want to get out. Five baths a year. And I take a shower like every day or almost every day. My bathtub is like tiny. Yeah, and that's I still the problem. Make it work because I love baths so much, yeah. and my like knees are just in my chest. Yeah. I like a, a huge bath, and I also really like a huge sink, like one of those deep ranch style. You got like your whole arms down in the sink with your dishes. Oh, yeah. I really appreciate that. You should. Yeah. We should normalize larger amenities. That's that's the spark I'm. Okay. Chipping off the old flint block. <laughs> You're a revolutionary. I'm just, I just want a nice bathtub. Oh, man. Going back to the climate change thing. Yeah. Have you guys seen the new private jet things where they're taking like 11 minute trips? Yeah. They're totally. like yeah. flying in like LA. Drake just did it. And then like one of the Kardashians did it. Yeah. So like. That's why I feel uh, depressed. It just yeah. doesn't seem efficient. It's like kind of a headache to do that, but whatever. All right. What's everyone's favorite Dorito flavor and why is it sweet chili? Mine's sweet chili. (laughs) So, because it tastes good. Mine's nacho cheese. Nacho cheese. It's just the classic? Yeah. It's just my favorite. uh, Sweet chili is a little too sweet for me. It almost tastes like a treat. But there's an old discontinued flavor called salsa that's by far That was my favorite. All time. I don't know where it's gone. It needs to come back. The it's black in the black bag. bag. Yeah, it's in the black bag. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was so, that's like my all-time favorite chip. Yeah, I love it. But barring that, since I can't get that anymore, I'm going to go with the salsa verde. I like that. I like that. It's, I like a little more savoriness to my chip than the sweet chili provides. Right. Sweet Maybe it's just because I got like the old salsa on my mind, but I can't do the salsa verde. I'm like, mm. this isn't. Yeah. I can eat a whole <laughs> bag of just nacho cheese. All right. Well, that's that's good. We'll All do right. more on the part two. Cool. Um, well, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Yeah, we're looking forward to part two. I still have a ton of research to do because this story just goes on and on and on. But we're really excited. We're super excited to have Payne join us, someone who actually, you know, has been podcasting for a long time <laughs> and has made a big difference in his podcast. So thanks, everyone, for joining us. And we'll talk to you real soon. All right. Love you guys. Bye. Love you. Bye. Whether you're in a relationship, single, or recently heartbroken, you could be navigating some tough stuff. And it really can be challenging to do this on your own. We all need help when it comes to our relationships, very specifically, our love lives. I'm Jillian, and each week on my podcast, Jillian on Love, I share skills on how to strengthen our relationships, how to build a stronger sense of self, and how to heal heartbreak and choose better partners. Learn how to start making change today and search for Jillian on Love wherever you're listening now.